Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 484. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please go visit evergreenpodcasts.com. So this week's interview is with Sarah Rosentuller. Sarah's a dialogue coach and leadership consultant, founder and CEO of Bridgework Consulting, who has authored two really interesting books, Powered by Purpose and How to Have Meaningful Conversations. In this conversation with Sarah, we discuss her career trajectory, including her fascinating life beginning as a busker to becoming a dialogue consultant and author. We look at what makes for a big conversation, the importance of self-awareness, the role of meaningful conversations for tackling mental health, cultural differences, and a whole lot more. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And please, if you have a moment, do consider the drop-in, your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Sarah Rosentuller. How lovely to have you on my show. You are a multiple-time author, written two books, both at least one of which was in several editions, but both of which attracted my attention. But I've decided to focus in on your, your book about how to have meaningful conversations, seven strategies for talking about what matters. But in your own words, Sarah, how would you like to describe yourself? Oh, well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Minta. Hello to your listeners as well. And how would I describe myself? Gosh, endlessly curious um, about life, about people. I have a real love of people. And I think that's what took me into studying psychology. And I have followed that thread now for many years, but also stepped off that thread in my 20s and had a bit of a wild alternative life for a number of years and looking back that actually confirmed for me that if I am anything professionally the closest label I could have is let's say psychologist or coach Um, so those are some initial thoughts about who I am. Yes and I'm just going to look in the book how there's a sentence you said that sort of struck me it says we teach what we need to learn and I think of my daughter who's entering St. Andrews to be a psychologist and, and how much some psychologists come into the field because they want to learn about themselves first. Is that something that was your experience? Probably, looking back. Uh, but I had an amazing professor of psychology at Nottingham University where I studied and he was my personal tutor for my time there and one of the rather sobering pieces of research he shared with us is that if you looked at suicide rates amongst graduates of different disciplines it was lowest among engineering graduates and highest among psychology graduates and he we would have conversations about this pattern And he would say, well, either a psychology degree isn't doing people much good um, or the discipline is attracting in maybe some rather troubled people. So I thought long and hard about that. Um, And 
Yeah, I, I think maybe it relates more to the interest in dialogue and conversation that I've looked back on my childhood and thought, are the, are the roots of the interest there? And they probably are. And so to be brief about it, I grew up in a family of four children, second of four, where as a little one, I could sense that there were things not being spoken about. So there was sort of this seemingly quite positive, loving atmosphere. And then once in a while, one of the grown ups would just erupt with anger. Uh, and that for me as a child was very scary. And I think that's where my curiosity in dialogue and conversation began. How is it that we can talk with one another without going into silence or violence? And those have very deep roots in me. Well, it's wonderful that you express that, Sarah, because I think one of the things that is troubling in our society today is that it can be easy to grab onto a cause or to a purpose that is popular, that sounds good, that, oh yeah, I'd like to be part of this. But it's my observation that many of those attachments are, let's say, fleeting, if not superficial, not deeply connected into something within their past. And therefore, at one point, it, it it becomes a funeral. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it can be a form of denial to just focus on what's shiny and new and positive. Uh, and I also feel in terms of how the change process works, whether that's at an individual level or a group level or a societal level, it begins when we acknowledge current reality and come to terms with what's happening right now in all the different colours of that, you know, and there might be some nice, bright, shiny colours, but I think we also need to be honest about the grittier stuff as well. And of course, that then takes us back to conversation. And how do we talk about tricky things where it might get uncomfortable, it might get very uncomfortable without people leaving the room? Um, and I've been on that journey for decades, really, how to do that. And I am still learning. Hence, we teach what we need to learn, as you picked up. Yeah. And I am definitely on that road as well, Sarah. One of the charming aspects of your book is that you talk about, uh, at numerous times, you talk about yourself. I'm not going to say in a self-deprecating way, but because that's you know, the true English fashion, but this notion of the skinny you and your journey to Spain and the busking, or at least you know the, the juggling that you, you learned how to do. And you're the first busker I've had on my show. <laughs> not that you're officially, I'm going to give you that title um, for <laughs> after so many hundred shows. I was wondering... Explain to us a little bit how that busking still manifests itself in your life today. Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, and you've taken me right back to a moment that was a real gift to me um, years ago. So this was after the four or five years busking in Spain where I learned how to juggle, but then really spent the time learning the craft of street circus, how you pull a crowd, entertain a crowd, pass the hat. 
Um, and then things are kind of all that in Spanish, of course. All all of that in Spanish. Por favor. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I ended that chapter in my life in quite a broken, dark place, actually, um, because I think deep down I wasn't really fulfilled. I loved making kids smile and grown-ups laugh, but at a deeper level, it wasn't fulfilling. Um, anyway, turn the clock forward a number of years, maybe five years, and I met uh, Peter Garrett, who um, had worked closely with Bill Isaacs, who's the author of Dialogue and the Art of Thinking Together. And this com in this conversation, uh, Peter Garrett said to me, ah, so you've done Street Circus. You must know all about how you build containers. Uh, and it's a strange word, the container word. Yeah, it was. When I read it, I, I had to read that passage over a few times to really get what a container is. Yeah, we might think of shipping containers. Yeah. Or in a way, it's a clumsy word. But in dialogue work, particularly group work, it's um, referring to a safe and energizing space where you can have the conversation that really matters. Uh, Bill Isaacs would say, as the container is, so goes the conversation. And so you need to create this sort of robust space that can hold tension and that can hold diversity of perspective and the gritty things and the hard truths. And it was a real moment when Peter Garrett said to me, you must have learned on the street how to build containers. And it obviously wasn't a container for a deep dialogue about purpose or whatever. It was a container um, to entertain, um, but to hold people's attention. And that would be the parallel. And so in that wonderful comment from Peter Garrett, he kind of reframed for me those years that I'd spent busking, it was easy for me to have a narrative that those were my lost years. And, you know, I'd kind of thrown away years of my life um, having this fairly wild time in Spain. But actually, to this day, I harvest that experience of, because it's an energetic thing, how you gather people's energies that are very scattered into a more coherent energy field. Um, and that's an art that I'm fascinated with to this day. Yes, and I wanna to try to get into that in a moment as we explore meaningful conversation. So you, you, in your second edition of the book, you changed the title from life-changing conversations to how to have meaningful conversations. So maybe either through qualifying that change or describing, defining what is a meaningful conversation? How would you like to answer that? I think a meaningful conversation involves some open heartedness. I think there's a sense that, and I'm having that sense right now talking to you, you know, that I'm kind of showing up a bit warts and all, you know, sharing some life's history <laughs> maybe some proud moments some moving moments, but some tricky moments as well. Mm. Um, and there's a sense of mutuality in a meaningful conversation. So a sense that the other person is also feeling able to show up as their real selves. Um, so there's a sort of an exchange. 
um, not just of ideas and thinking, but of energy. And, that and we, feelings. And feelings, absolutely, yes. And that we then leave that conversation. I think if it's truly meaningful, feeling inspired, feeling energised, perhaps feeling more lucid because we understand something better or we understand the other person more deeply. So I think that's that's the territory of a meaningful conversation. So in listening to you, Sarah, naturally you're a practitioner, you're a professional in this space, and you talk about it at times within the book, but it can very frequently be just a one-sidedness to that ability or desire for the meaningful conversation, or to put it another way, the activation of the meaningfulness within the conversation might be one dry, one person driving it. I need to talk to you. Let's talk. As you say, can you, you, can we talk? Mm -hmm. And, and behind that is desire for meaningfulness because I need to address something with you, Sarah, about something that's happened in many of the stories you talk about. And so there's one person who's ready. And then you talk about the need to I, I use the expression manage the cats because, <laughs> right? Because in front of you, you have an adult who has many years of experience, comes with their own feelings and, and thoughts and, and beliefs and so on. And, and so you go into that sort of aware that you want to have the meaningful conversation. They may not be on the same platform yeah. on this, you know, for the same train going for that journey. How do you respond to that? And how do you make that happen such that the other person is ready to be on the train with you? Oh, well, I think there's a few things that help. I think one is pick your moment. Uh, I'll never forget a badly picked moment that I had when I really wanted to ask my boss, I was working in the civil service at the time, if I could have her permission her blessing to go on secondment and I caught her at the end of a what had been a very difficult meeting for her in the corridor at the top of a flight of stairs she was out of breath I mean of course she said no um, so uh, she later said yes um, and the difference was was that I picked a moment where there was more likely there are never any guarantees but more likely to find some readiness and for that particular cat to be ready. Um, but I also think that we can be, um, somebody once put it to me, we can be unilaterally dialogic. And what she meant by this, and this was a practitioner of Imago Dialogue, the work of Harville Hendricks, um, who's written a book called Getting the Love You Want. And his genius is about getting dialogue to work between uh, life partners, married couples, where, as we know, you know, the triggers can be, you know, there can be hair triggers uh, in that particular context. And one of um, the skills that he really offers is around deeper listening. Uh, and in my own work, that's always my starting point with people for a meaningful conversation is how do we get really present so that we are fully here in this moment, listening to the other person. And without that, without that presence and that deeper listening, 
you know, the other person, if they're not interested, they're not going to become interested. And again, there's no guarantee that we've then got um, an engaged partner, but we're much more likely to find that if we're listening fully. Um, and if I can add one other thing, and if we bring our curiosity and our questions, mm. so we're not just asserting our own opinion, but we're genuinely interested in how that other person is feeling. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's um, I, I, I tend to put it in the term of managing patience and passion, where passion, let's say, is the purpose of the talk, which is running your blood and getting you high in some energetic manner where you need to say something. It can be possibly a nerve-wracking energy. And then the patience, the ability to listen and allow for the cat to get to its meow uh, without the monkey brain, to use another animal reference uh, that we have, running off into a thousand thoughts because our brain is that way wired to have so many disparate thoughts coming in and clouding our ability to even express ourselves, much less listen. Yes. Yeah, I really love that, that the patience, the passion, the, and the need to manage our monkey mind from all that inner chatter and again, I just think the inner dialogue has such an impact on the outer dialogue. And again, um, there's there's work for us to do, I think, as individuals to find ways of being more present so that, yeah, we're not distracted by the inner dialogue so we can be available for the other person. That is definitely a big part of how to make a conversation more meaningful. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. And as you and I are having a conversation, I'm the driver of the conversation. So I'm constantly aware in my mind of how what's next. Mm, yeah. And that inevitably crowds my listening. Sure. Sure. I, I, I can relate to that. And I, I, I feel that in a, particularly in a coaching conversation or facilitating a team dialogue, like that real challenge of how to be as present as I can in the moment and responsive and that responsibility of sometimes needing to move the conversation on or make sure we cover that particular ground. I, I can relate to that. Yeah. And I think that it's something that we all need to relate to in that self-awareness mode of whether you're a parent talking to a child, a boss talking to an employee, 
or whatever you're trying to achieve within the conversation to the extent you have an agenda. Because you do mention at one point the idea of agenda-free dialogues. And I've been a big fan of that in general. Yet, if you run a business, you also have shit to do and things to accomplish and conversations to be had, whether it's a difficult employee satisfaction or someone who's not performing or someone you have to fire that that happens and those are difficult conversations and you talk a, you talk a fair amount about the the how as opposed to the what yet did i feel sarah when i was reading your the way you distinguish them i feel the what is so important mm-hmm. because what you say like the 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 thing you start with you talked about that person with the blind person you know, I, I can't, it's a beautiful day, but I can't see it. For me, that's not how, that's what was being said. That's framing the horizon at some level, mm. because of how I say it, well, that means I can say it with disdain. I can say it with anger. I can say it with relaxation and it comes across in a different way, the exact same words. So I think of the context and the, the manner as the how yeah. The what as a specific thought that we're going to start with, that isn't so much the how. That for me is a what. That I wanted to have your reaction to that. Yeah, I think both are important, and I appreciate you underlining the what. Uh, and of course, they're they're very interrelated. Uh, and where I've gone to in my own thoughts is and. You may have picked this up in the foreword to the book that Neil Donald Walsh very generously wrote, where he quotes that line, speak your truth, but Mm. soothe your words with peace. Mm. And I think for me, that statement, which is a brilliant statement of the whole summary, really, of the whole book, has got the how and the what in it because the soothe your words with peace and be respectful and mindful of the other Mm. person and yet speak your truth and say what is so for you Mm. Um, because without the truth sharing um, we don't build trust we can't build that bridge to the other person so that's where I went in my mm. own mind around the what and the how combined. Love it. Well, then in for me, maybe just as another, I may, I'm now thinking it's passion and patience re-expressed in a different way. You use the word grace mm. uh, later on in the book um, as a sort of the, the, the soothing of the way you say things and saying things with grace, even though you want to say something difficult. The terms that I used to use was fair and firm, uh-huh. where... You, you still want to speak your truth. It's something uh, that is you need to say, but you can do it in a way, the how, fairly, in a way that it listens in, with empathy. If you can think about how, how the other person's feeling in, in advance, like you're the minister, whoever you spoke to, you caught them at the wrong time. The, the empathy piece as well, they look stressed. Uh-oh. Not a good thing. So there's a there's an element of manipulation in that in that particular thought because you want to get achieve your thing to get your secondment happen. Mm-hmm. So finding that little balance and and how it can be useful to them, if we can think through that a little bit and build that bridge into how my secondment might be of benefit to them. Yeah. When you're speaking to a boss about trying to get some budget 
why is this budget allocation going to actually make their lives better? How are you going to make them better people? So it's not just about me, it's about us together. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I really like your fair and firm, you know. Not mine. It was given to me, by the way. Oh, that was given to My mentor, my mentor, uh, Pat Parenti, uh, taught me that one. Yeah. Fair and firm. And I think it is. It's this... um, balance or interweaving between yeah I I suppose our own truth or desire or we could say agenda and you know it's something my mum taught me growing up my mother is a very kind woman and she would just often point out to me that there are other people involved you know in the situation and how do we take those other people into account um, and actually I I think in a way my master class in dialogue I've talked about the busking but the other life-changing experience was going through divorce actually again a bit of an un um, not a typical curriculum um, but I around the time of writing Uh, what was then life-changing conversations I went through a separation and divorce from my now ex-husband and I think that's why it's so close to my heart like how do we stand in our truth when that truth could be potentially very hurtful to another person but if we don't express it we're going to be betraying ourselves. And how do you manage that whole process with some sensitivity? Um, And, you know, to this day, whatever it now is, 10 years later, 12 years later, I'm still good friends with my ex-husband. You know, we still talk. um, And I think it's, I do, I feel it's possible to have these really tricky conversations without rupturing relationships. And that's been my, that experience has probably on a personal level been my biggest teacher. You, you have in the book a passage where you are accompanying a man who is who's 20 years into marriage and, and wants to um, say to her kindly, Catherine, listen, I need you to... I, I, you know, I love you and I want to leave <laughs> or he's like respect you. And, and of course, at some level, it's a, a good model or sentiment to express to the children who probably see it anyway, whether you're trying to protect them, which is what we think we're doing. So um, in, in the time we have left, um, I want to talk about sex. Uh, but before that, uh, we're going to get into that. But I, I did want to ask you about um, something you don't seem to address in the mm-hmm. book, which is men and women's perspective and thoughts within conversation. So let me preface by saying one of the most powerful books I ever read was by a woman called Dr. Tannen, Deborah Tannen, men and, so you just don't understand men and women in conversation. Mm. Wanted to have Sarah's opinion on men and women in conversation. And do you believe there's any differences in the way that we express ourselves, that we are formulated? Is it just a cultural thing? Is, uh, is there something that's a little bit uh, longer rooted in the way we are fabricated? Or, uh, or how do you look at that topic? 
well, where I go to, and I'm not familiar with that book, so I've made a note of that. Great. But where I've gone immediately in my own mind is actually around work that I do with a dear colleague, Sarah Jane Monato, around women's leadership, where some of the work we do there is helping women, again, to find out what's true for them, to then find their voice, to find a way of expressing themselves that is coherent with how they're really feeling inside. And that work feels really precious. And my sense is that there are conversations that we have in a all female container that are different to conversations in a mixed container of men and women. And of course, by definition, I've never been in an all-male container, but my guess is that the same might well be true for men. Uh, and it's not, it's not a direct answer to your question, um, but I have really grappled with questions around, you know, motherhood, for example, or how, to, how it might work to combine motherhood and career and so I've really valued that space in particular to grapple with those questions. And maybe there are questions that men might find it easier to grapple with in an all male container. Um, so that, that's where my immediate thoughts go. I love it. Well, my, my minor at university in America was women's studies. And uh, which is no longer allowed to be called that, of course, but uh, that's what it was called back in those days. And uh, since I was the only male in the group, it gave me opportunities to be almost a fly on the wall within a woman's discussion. At the same time, I played rugger and played with 14 other sweaty men right. and, um, and had conversations in pubs and, and the like, locker room and so on. And, uh, and, it, and it certainly has been my observation that these conversations are tremendously different. And I don't know to ascribe that to culture or um, you know, the way we are. Um, but my, my feeling is that the, 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 the separator is the whole bodiedness of it, the whole embodiedness of what we're trying to say. And my, my observation has been that men compartmentalize it which allows them to explore it in a sort of more singular less less complex manner which gives a certain benefit to it because i'm not going to bring into it things that might invade the container mm. being i'm going to talk about a professional thing and we're not going to have anything personal within it whereas on balance the the female version of that is i bring the whole to the conversation and I observe feelings and I can, I'm a, I feel it's normal to introduce into this container what might have happened in the morning, the night before, whereas there's the compartmentalization, which makes it simpler for the male, but it also is detracting from the humane, the human side. And so for men, that's sort of a vulnerability, a weakness. For the woman, it's in a male world, a complicated thing to do. You talk about women leadership. And so it's, it's about, for me, not trying to adapt to the 
current world, but figuring out the path and allowing for the differences to explore and, and for each to learn from one another because the compartmentalization at times is absolutely vital. Yes. But at other times to forget our full embodiedness is a disaster for humanity. Yeah. Yeah, there are different gifts. And I, speaking as somebody in a female body, I feel that the, um, the menstrual cycle that not all women have, but many women have, is an amazing ally because our bodies move in cycles. And so there are changes in the energetic states and states of being. And I think as I've grown older, I've really come to deepen my appreciation of the menstrual cycle as an ally, as a teacher. Um, and, you know, there are times in the cycle when I will choose to pick my moment to have, if I just bring it back to the conversation theme, to maybe have a conversation where I really need to stand my ground because perhaps in the pre-menstruum, I've got more of that fierce energy available to me. And I'm less likely than I am at the ovulatory phase to just sort of walk <laughs> over things and be a bit wrapped in cotton wool. And that is available to, and I'm, again, I just want to acknowledge maybe not all women, but many women, and we can really harvest that, that full-bodiedness in our conversations. I love it. And I, I so think that there's a lovely conduit to our last topic, which is sex, mm -hmm. uh, which you've provocatively uh, write down. Um, let's talk about sex. So um, just give us an idea. I think it's a perfect um, segue. Uh, what, what, do, what do you mean by let's look at sex in conversation? Well, if my memory is right, uh, thinking about that bit of the book, I think I make a link to, again, Neil Donald Walsh's, um, so sex is an acronym for synergistic energy exchange. Mm -hmm. And so whenever we're interacting, whether it's like this over a video, on a podcast, or in person, one-on-one, -on -one, or in a group setting, or a crowd and a, watching a busker perform there's an energy exchange mm. and so the question is kind of like what's the quality of that energy exchange and that always felt true to me when I read Neil's take on that and again I think in dialogue where again it's, it's not a direct answer to your question so feel free to ask me another question but ultimately it's all about the dynamism of the energy exchange and how vibrant that is and how alive that is, or if that's feeling really stuck or if it's gone really flat, let's pay attention to that. And what can we do to get the flow of energy um, moving again? And whenever I'm facilitating a dialogue, that's generally what I'm actually plugged into is the quality, the quality of the energetic field. That's what I'm really attending to. I sort of see that more easily with hindsight. Uh, and so though that take from Neil Donald Walsh was very resonant for me. Yeah, in, in um, Sherry Tuckle's book, she, in Reclaiming Conversation, she talks about the seven second, no, sorry, seven minute rule. 
that one of her students applied to a conversation at the end of which if seven seconds the energies aren't, aren't flowing the chances of it being activated are small and so she sort of that's when she allows herself to whip out the phone and say well fuck off let's move, move along <laughs> all right well listen um absolutely wish we had another couple of hours to pursue the conversation um, I wanted to talk about elevation exercise number nine. You have so many great things in the book for people to read about. How can people follow you, uh, hire you to do your work on, on dialogue uh, in business, uh, find ways to have purpose? What, what would be the best links that I can put in the show notes? Now, I really appreciate that question. I'm active on LinkedIn. That tends to be the social media platform I use. So very welcome to connect with me there or on Twitter, uh, and then website-wise, probably the best one is my own name, so sarahrosentula.com, uh, and then my consulting company is called Bridgework Consulting, and there's also a website, bridgeworkconsulting.com, and uh, maybe I'll just do one last shout-out that I, uh, along with... Um, two colleagues chris and alberto we we've formed the purpose collective and we offer free fortnightly conversations about purpose uh, online and we we're taking a summer break but we resume in september and that's really easy uh, again you'll find us on linkedin to register and your listeners would be very, very welcome to come and have some meaningful conversations that's in the business context. Uh, as I say, they're free and they're interactive. So that's another option. I should put that into the show notes. Of course, Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. Real pleasure. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash MinterDial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of a stranger Tucked around me, precipitating the danger To feel free, trust is a reason Still I won't tell the lie I sit here passively, hope for your respect Anticipating the thrill of your intellect Maybe I tell myself, there's no use in me lying I'm a convinced man building an urge I'm a convinced man to live and die suburb A convinced man in the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man challenge my fate I'm a convinced man
competitions and made a convinced man in the arms of a woman. Despite revenges and struggle with deceit, live for the challenge so life's not incomplete. What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die. The feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust in my reason and let me show you why. I'm a convinced man practicing my lines. I'm a convinced man here in these confines. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man. Me to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year hard rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzoir, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. 
Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.